0: Hello, and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 31 Starting from Scratch. Well, In the immortal words of the 1987 classic from Whitesnake, I I think I can safely say now that I am the only Victorian history podcast to have ever played 80s rock. (laughs) I know I have been gone for a while, but it is great to be back and recording again. To those that have reached out while I have been busy writing and not recording, big thank you. It's always great hearing from people who love history and this era in particular. I had planned on having episodes out before now. It does take me a while, unfortunately. I wrote most of the original series during lockdowns here in Australia, so I had plenty of time to read and write. This year, however, has kind of gotten away from me but I was determined to get an episode out this particular week. then, of course, we had the sad news of the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. At the time I'm recording this, well, the funeral was last night. And I have to say, no one does pageantry like the United Kingdom. An amazing send-off for a woman devoted to service. And the other reason I was striving to have an episode out this week is because This time next week, I shall be in Glasgow. Yes, my wife and I are finally getting the chance to get back to Scotland during a three-week break that is two years late, but we are going to be travelling around what is known as the North Coast 500. For those of you unfamiliar with this road trip, we're basically driving all around the coast of the top end of Scotland. I do plan on having another episode drop while we're away, as I like to keep them sort of coming out fortnightly, so make sure you subscribe on your podcast app of choice so that you don't miss out. I will be going crazy with photos, I am sure, but will try and control myself, but I'll definitely be putting some up on the Instagram account. So make sure to have a look. Just search for Victorian Guest Lamp. I'm sure you'll find me there. So that's the housekeeping all out of the way. And as I start on what I guess is the second season of the Victorian Guest Lamp, I guess it is kind of like starting from scratch. Which is me segueing beautifully into this episode's topic. Because this episode, we're heading down into the underground world of Victorian era Fight Club. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to talk about Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. Sorry Brad, we really are going to be talking about it. Now, ever since one guy thought it was better than the other guy, there have been fights. First off, they were probably over who got the better looking woman, because hey, boys will be boys. But then, in the interests of civility, and no doubt the idea that a dollar or a pound could be made on who might win fighting moved from a savage brawl to what has become known as boxing. As for the name of boxing, well, the best I can find out on that is when two men were going to fight, spectators would hold a rope and form a ring in which the fighter would challenge local men. But because the two competitors were boxed in by the spectators, it's speculated that this is where the term boxing came from. Initially, many of these fights were between roving boxers, seeking challenges and the opportunity to make some money from their fighting. If you wanted to try your chances against the fighter, you would toss your hat into the ring, which is where that phrase comes from, and challenge him accordingly. But later on, when the crowds increased then it became more important to organise the events, The use of men holding a rope fell by the wayside, and wooden stakes were used to create an area to fight in. Despite this now clearly being a square, the old shape remained in the consciousness of the spectators, and to this day, we still call that squared-off zone a ring. Insofar as boxing in the United Kingdom goes, well, the first formal bout is listed as having occurred back in 1681 didn't take long for people to continue organising people to pound on each other, and by 1698, regular contests were being held at the Royal Theatre in London. <laughs> that does make me laugh, because can you imagine some patron of the arts in London today finding out that their beloved theatre used to be a place people fought bare-knuckled and bloody? Mortified, they probably wouldn't believe it, but hey, I would reply to them, is it art? Anyway, during this time, the purse for the fight was whatever was agreed upon. Naturally, people made side bets on the outcome too. And yes, you would be correct in your belief that these fights were fought bare knuckled. No gloves here. It was all about skin on skin and pounding it out without rules. These days, we have different weight divisions to segment the various boxes. But back in the day, it was anyone willing to get in. Hey, you took your chances, no matter how big the other guy is. These days, a round in boxing is three minutes. And trust me, if you've ever tried to go 100% physically for three minutes, that's long enough. Spin class, anyone? No? In the early days of boxing, though, a round lasted as long as it took to put the other guy on the ground. One minute, or ten you punched on until either of you went down. And the fight went on as long as it took until someone could no longer fight. And in their early days, knocking someone down didn't mean you stopped. It meant you got some extra licks in before they had to start the next round. This last dishonourable act was allowed until around the mid-1700s when they finally put a stop to it. As I said, there were no weight divisions, so to a large extent, basically the biggest guy fighting usually won. One such man was James Figg, and while we don't have any information on how big he actually was, the fact that he was credited as being the world champion of boxing for 15 years says to me that he must have been a big man. And it was one of Figg's pupils, a man named Jack Broughton, who in 1743 created the first set of rules that modern fans of the sport would recognise. It's thought that he created the rules because he had caused the death of a fighter in a match, although I couldn't find any proof of that. But it was nearly 100 years later, in 1838 and our century of interest, that the more comprehensive London prize ring rules came into place. With these new rules, the ring was defined as an area of 24 feet or 7.32 meters square and when a fighter went down, that was the end of the round. You could then be helped to your corner and you had a massive 30 seconds to get yourself together. At that point, you were to make your way, unaided, to a line drawn in the middle of the ring and if by those 30 seconds you hadn't gotten there, You got an additional eight count, but then you were regarded as out and forfeiting the fight. And they also removed the kicking, gouging and headbutting from fights. Oh, and that line drawn in the middle of the ring, that was called The Scratch. And that, dear listeners, is where we get the title of this particular episode and the phrase starting from scratch. The things you learn. It's also from this time that we get the term stakes, as in high stakes or stake money. With the poles holding the ring ropes being stakes of wood, the betting money on the fight would be bagged and held on one of the stakes until the fight was over. This bag of money became known as the stake. And aside from this, of course, we all know the phrase of a knockout blow, which of course derives from one man giving a right thumping blow to another. This term for a decisive move has moved into the modern language and also come to mean a highly attractive woman. It's probably less used these days, but saying that a woman was a knockout was a way of complimenting her appearance. But the boxing we know and love, well know of anyway, from the past really hit its height during the Regency period. This, of course, was the period of time when Prince George, soon to be King George IV, was taking care of business for his dad, the continually ailing George III. So we're talking early 1800s here. And it was during this time that the boxers fought bare-knuckled and with some degree of sportsmanship, going toe-to-toe in long, bloody, brutal bouts. It's also important to note that in the early part of the century, that boxing was very much a sport of the working class. But, of course, those making a dollar, or pound in this case, wanted to find ways of making more. And since they didn't have streaming services to create endless channels of mindless content like we endure today, those trying to make quid went to those that had said quid the rich. John Graham Chambers was a man that had to be admired for whatever he achieved in his life. He was a Welshman born in 1843, who rode for Cambridge, was a champion walker, an editor for a newspaper, and then went on to create championship competitions for billiards, boxing, cycling and wrestling. He also established the Amateur Athletic Club in 1866, which later became the Amateur Athletic Association in 1880. This later group remains the oldest national governing body for athletics in the world. But only a year after creating the Amateur Athletic Club, Chambers was the man who knew that to progress the sport of boxing, they needed serious bank and patronage from the rich. Chambers managed to get the support of John Sholto Douglas, who lent his name to the new rules that would influence boxing right through to this day. Contestants from this time on had to wear padded gloves. A boxing round was limited to the three minutes that we know of today and which would then be followed up by a rest. Wrestling was no longer allowed and the classic ten seconds to get up off the floor was established at this time. It's also here that they created the weight divisions similar to what we know of today. These rules pretty much do continue through to the modern era. And of course, at this point, you're going, Hey Heath, I've never heard of the Douglas rules. What on earth are you talking about? To which I would reply, Fair cop, the Douglas rules is something I've never heard of either. But when I then also add, Dear listener, did you know that John Sholto Douglas was the ninth Marquis of Queensbury? and mayhaps you have heard of the Marquis of Queensbury rules, to which you reply, of course, Silly me, let's go for a pint, my shout. Cheers. Naturally, given the violent nature of boxing at the time, these new rules were roundly scorned. This sort of fighting was considered unmanly. However, as some of the more prominent boxers of the time, including soon-to-be heavyweight champion James Jem Mace, were happy to fight under the new rules, they soon became accepted by the public. As the century went on, boxing became a global sport. Taken to America by British and Irish immigrants, the Americans soon started coming to the United Kingdom to box as well. In addition to the shift in rules, dominance in the ring began to slowly shift to American fighters. The change started perhaps with American fighters competing in Britain during the Regency era. And boy, did things get entertaining then. Back in 1763 on Staten Island in the US, Bill Richmond was born into slavery. He was just 13 when he enlisted with the British Army, because quite frankly, why would you want to side with a nation that wanted to keep you as property? The year 1776 found young Bill in the army tending horses. Three other soldiers thought it would be fun to pick on the new kid, including the fact that he was black. Showing early aptitude in the skill that would see him travel the world, Bill took fist to bully and soon had two running away while the third lay on the ground bleeding fatally. He then went back to work. The British commander, General Percy, took a liking to the lad and took him back to England. Bill had his education paid for and he was also made an apprentice to a cabinet maker in York. Which, by the way, I will be returning to in October and frankly cannot wait. I do love York. Anyway, despite his fortune in being freed from slavery, having an education and a good job, Bill still got into fights regularly. If you thought the insults were largely racial, points to you. But also Bill often dated white women, something which was a bit of a no-no to the general populace. He would also dress fashionably for the time, so he was a real standout on the streets. He often had men attempt to provoke fights in public, to which he would oblige and beat the ignorant moron who had insulted him. He became known as the, brace yourself, Black Terror. Good for marketing at the time, I guess. Hmm. By the 1790s, Bill had moved to London and got a job with a big fan of boxing, the Lord Camelford. Even though boxing was still illegal, it was spreading throughout the social classes in terms of interest. By now, fans of boxing were called the fancy, and that collective term covered all fans of boxing, from the poor to the very rich. Richmond continued to box and had enhanced his American style of boxing to the point where he was one of the most successful boxers of his time. And this was mainly because Bill used footwork in his fights. Now, I'm sure even the most unknowledgeable of boxing amongst those listening have an understanding in context of what I've just said. We all know that boxers move about the ring, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee and all that. But I did leave out something earlier about English boxing. Because aside from the fact that gloves were considered unmanly for a long time, so was moving about. That scratch line I mentioned earlier, you put your toe on it and you went for it, blow for blow, take the hits and dish them out. You didn't move about and you didn't dodge. You're a man after all, you can take a punch, right? So, when Bill Richmond was moving about the ring, dodging blows and striking back, there were many aficionados of the sport that saw this behaviour as, again, unmanly. But he didn't get hit as much, and he won fights. So, for all the inherent racism and sport bias, he was still respected as he carved a niche in English society in a sport that was soon spreading amongst all the classes in its popularity. In one match, he fought the world bare-knuckle champion, Tom Cribb. Cribb had a reputation for being able to take more punishment in the ring than anyone else. The apocryphal legend has that he once had a 500-pound crate fall on top of him. He was injured, certainly coughed up some blood, but five days later, he was fine. Richmond fought Cribb for his title, and at the time, Richmond was 42 and Cribb was just 24. In the end, Richmond couldn't beat Cribb, but the fight lasted for 90 minutes. Can you imagine being in a boxing match where it's all bare knuckles? You only have a new round when someone has been knocked down, and you only have 30 seconds to get back to the scratch, and then doing that for as long as a movie. You can try. I'll give that a miss, thanks all the same. And Tom Cribb was no slouch in the ring. He'd been born in 1781, and his career started in 1805 when he defeated George Maddox. A month later, he won his second fight, and in July of that same year, he lost to George Nichols. But in a career that spanned 25 professional fights, this was the only time he would ever lose. By 1810, he was awarded the British Championship title and effectively the Boxing Champion of the World. And as Tom Cribb's star was rising, so was that of American Tom Molyneux. Tom's early life is probably more legend than anything else by now. Like Bill Richmond, he'd been born as a slave, although in Virginia, in 1784. Tom grew quickly and was a big youth. His owner saw potential in the young man and had him trained by an Englishman in boxing, hoping to make some money on the fights that he might be in. And when I say trained, I mean he was forced to learn. Being whipped when you refuse to learn something adds some incentive to the learning of the task, I guess. And when he was 17, Tom was in the bout of his life. Because if he won it, and win it he did, his reward was his freedom. As I said, it's more legend than anything else, and it certainly sounds like a script from a movie. But nevertheless... He ended up working on the docks in New York and from there he made his way to England where he had learned that there was money to be made in prize fighting. And he was no slouch in the self-promotion department. Molyneux got into prize fighting quickly in the United Kingdom. Challenging anyone he could, he soon came to the attention of fellow African American and former slave, Bill Richmond. Molyneux quickly became a protege to Richmond and was trained by him they made quite the odd couple. One was a well-educated man who enjoyed dressing flamboyantly, and the other a man who could barely read or write. Molyneux's favourite punch was called the hammer. That is, it's an overhead punch that comes crashing down on the top of your opponent's head. And in a fight that with Jack Burrows that lasted 65 minutes, Molyneux won convincingly. And this is where we start sounding again like a movie trope, Because Molyneux was being trained by Richmond and Burroughs was being trained by Tom Cribb. In his second fight, Molyneux defeated Tom Blake, the man who had been Cribb's second win. So all this is great setup material for the movie I know we should already have in pre-production by now. As I mentioned, Molyneux was big on self-promotion and he was constantly challenging Tom Cribb publicly. And finally, he got his chance. On the 3rd of December, 1810, Tom Molyneux fought Tom Cribb for the English title. Reported at the time by writer Pierce Egan, Molyneux was around 5'8 and weighed in around about 90 kilos, 14 stone. So he was a solid man and reasonably big for the time. No one thought that this challenger would last long, maybe 10 rounds, but that was all. The fight started and the men went to the scratch. This brutal fight was in its 19th round when the men were locked in a wrestling hold. Can you imagine, again, lasting 19 rounds in this era of fighting, bare knuckled, barely breaking between rounds that lasted as long as he stood to fight. So locked in together, unable to move or punch the referee stood there, unable to decide what to do with the fighters. The crowd, rich and poor alike, grew restless at this stalemate and intruded on the ring and chaos broke out. In some way, Molyneux's left hand was injured. Whether it was from the fight or from an enthusiastic fight fan remains unknown. But Molyneux elected to keep fighting. But there was also another question that to this day remains unanswered because it is still unknown if Tom Cribb made it back to the scratch in time allotted. This would have seen him disqualified from the fight, but in their confusion, even the referee could not tell if Tom had got there in time. So the fight continued. This all happened in round 19, and then they fought on to the 34th round. It was at this time the normally vocal Molyneux had had enough. He wanted out. Incredibly, his second managed to convince him to go back, but it was in the 35th round that he was defeated. Two days later, Bill Richmond took him to the London Stock Exchange, where he received a standing ovation and was presented with 45 guineas. This would equate to around about 450 pounds today. Molyneux was successful in other fights, and then a return bout with Crib took place in September 1811 and in front of a reported 15,000 people, the fight only lasted 11 rounds. Merciful in my book, but right up until you find out that Molyneux lost their second bout because Crib broke his jaw. Ouch. Molyneux did continue in other bouts, having a great deal of success across the kingdom. This included a fight outside of Glasgow in 1814 that went on for 68 rounds. It's just pain. But enough was enough, and Molyneux ended his career in 1815. While he did do exhibition fights, by 1817 he was in Ireland suffering from tuberculosis. Then he was sentenced to debtors' prison and he became an alcoholic. Sadly, he died penniless on the 4th of August, 1818. He was just 34 years old. And what of the other boxers I've mentioned? Well, Bill Richmond had stopped boxing in 1809, but was fired by Molyneux after the second crib fight. He also lost a massive amount of money in betting on his protege. It caused him to sell the Horse and Dolphin, which was the pub that he'd owned. At the age of 50 in 1814, he returned to the ring. He won his fight and then accepted a fight with Tom Shelton, a man who was half his age and despite a serious eye injury early on in the fight, he went on to win it in 23 rounds. There was talk of him returning to boxing full-time, but Bill knew better, and by now Cribb was retired, and so Richmond again did the same. He was still famous though, and he would show his skills to visiting European royalty. And, trivia time to give you an idea of his status, he was an usher at the coronation of George IV in 1821. He continued training boxers into the 1820s, both professional and amateur, including Lord Byron. Yes, the poet and supporting cast member of Episode 8 on Mary Shelley. <laughs> he actually became friends with Tom Cribb. Cribb had retired in 1812 and became a coal merchant as well as a part-time boxing trader. He also owned a pub called the Union Arms in Panton Street near Haymarket in London. It was here that the two old pugilists shared a pint on December 27th, 1829. and The next day, Bill Richmond passed away, aged 66. Cribb retired from work in 1839 and he died in 1848 in Woolwich, also aged 66. And if you want to raise a glass to the boxing champion of the world, head to the Tom Cribb Pub at 36 Panton Street, St. James in London. It's built where Cribb's own Union Arms was. And because I like the little things, also known as trivia, Tom Molyneux has been buried in an unmarked grave without a headstone at St. James Graveyard in Galway in Ireland. In 2019, Irish boxer Katie Taylor unveiled a headstone for this slave free man boxer. Katie, nicknamed as simply the best, has a right to her nickname. 21 fights, 21 wins, 6 knockouts and a gold medal at the 2012 Olympics. I'm pretty sure that Tom would be happy having such a pugilist represent him. Oh, and according to DNA, well, American rapper and actor LL Cool J is a direct Descendant of Molinous family. 80s rock and an American rapper in the one Victorian history episode. What is the world coming to? (laughs) And because I can't help myself, Boxing Day, that is December 26th. The day after christmas was created during the victorian era it comes from the day when the rich people would box up gifts for the poor boxing day was a traditional day off for the servants of a household and they would receive these box presents and take them home to their families and on that note we are done with boxing and the first episode of this season huge thank you to peter for the inspiration for this particular episode he is an Aussie, but he is also living in the great state of Texas, USA. This one was a topic he suggested a while back. Hope you liked the episode, mate. And with that all said and done, here into the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. If you could follow me on Twitter, that'd be great at Vic Gaslamp. And more importantly on Instagram, where I post history facts and trivia, as well as photos related to the episodes. And I'm... Victorian gas lamp there as well. The next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that, and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.